This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative, find your unique voice, find the right mindset to succeed, be the first to capitalize on new opportunities, to make a living making your art. I'm David Katavish. You want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday. Please hit subscribe on your podcast app. And if you want the very best of Love Your Work and the gems I've discovered in my thousands of hours of research into history's greatest creators, all in one short weekly email, sign up for my Love Mondays newsletter. That's at kadavi.net slash Mondays. We're living in a time of exciting technological innovation, but just because technology can do something, does that mean that it should do that something? Cal Newport is the author of the new book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. And digital minimalism, as the name might imply, is a philosophy of using the power of technology only in the ways that it serves us best while eliminating use of technology in ways that actually harm us, or sometimes even in ways that only have a marginal benefit. Aside from digital minimalism, Cal Newport is an extremely prolific author. He's written books such as So Good They Can't Ignore You, Deep Work, and How to Become a Straight A Student. He's also a tenured computer science professor at Georgetown University. He's really somebody who makes you feel like you don't get very much done. Um, Cal has accomplished all of this in spite of, or maybe because, he has never had a single social media account. Though I gotta wonder, I mean, he's gotta have, he, he must visit Twitter every once in a while. He must have some secret account, that's what I think. Anyway, this is a fantastic conversation with Cal. He and I overlap a lot in our interests and the way that we think about things. So I was really eager to discuss with him the implications of technology use, to dig deeper into his relationship with deep work. And if you listen to Love Your Work regularly, you know that I'm always searching for ways to get more out of my mind. And I'm always searching for ways to maintain a healthy relationship with technology because when you're doing creative work, you need to use technology, or maybe you don't need to use technology. It certainly helps to get your creative work produced and to help get that work out into the world. But at the same time, that same technology that you use to do that creative work can also distract you from doing that creative work. So that's what's going to be so interesting about this conversation is exploring that. Uh, you're going to learn how did we all get so addicted to Facebook? Now, for many of us, it was an accident. For Facebook, according to Cal, it was no accident. And how do Amish communities survive? They survived hundreds of years, despite being surrounded by a world with a rapid pace of technological innovation. It turns out that it's all about using technology for its benefits without damaging the community. And Cal goes beyond deep work to talk about the different flavors of deep work that he uses to power his wildly successful career as both an academic and an author. I think you're going to see a lot of parallels between what Cal reveals and some of the things I've been talking about, about mental states for optimizing creative productivity. It was really wonderful to be able to ask him about that and the way that he thinks about deep work now that that book has been out for several years. So here we go. Here is Cal Newport. I'm very glad to be talking to Cal Newport today. And Cal, you have this new book out, Digital Minimalism. I think that, I mean, it instantly gives you some sort of an idea of, of what it is, but can you tell us what is digital minimalism? Well, I think of it as a philosophy of technology use. So a philosophy you can use to make decisions about what technology you allow into your life, which technologies you don't allow into your life and how you use it. And the basic idea behind this philosophy is that you should be much more intentional. Figure out what you really care about, what you really want to spend your time doing. And then you can go out and find tech that really boosts those things you care about and then be comfortable missing out on everything else. Mm -hmm. And well, it's funny that we, I mean, especially I, I spent some time in tech. You are a computer science professor. So I think that we both love some of the benefits that we get out of technology. The fact that we're able to have this conversation across continents. I, I'm in South America. You're in uh, the East Coast of the United States. That's pretty amazing right, right there. But uh, I guess we aren't always getting something good out of technology. Is that about right? When, the way that we get, we seem to get, 
the most benefits out of technology, generally speaking, not just now, but but historically, is when we're deploying tools on behalf of things we really care about, right? So when we deploy tools on behalf of things we really care about, we get these huge wins. It takes things that we really value and it really boosts up the amount of value we're able to extract from them. It makes everyone's life better. Where we get in trouble with technology is where uh, we get away from deploying it intentionally and allow the tech itself to become an end. That the tech itself starts to push around what we do, what we pay attention to, how we feel, when the tech begins to actually divert us from the things that we care about, as opposed to amplifying it. So minimalism in general is all about getting back in touch with what really matters, focusing your energy on the things that really matters. It turns out to be a really good fit for what's happening in a lot of people's lives right now with respect to their personal devices. Yeah, and so... What's an example of like a big win that we get with technology? I know you don't have any social media accounts. I've got a Facebook account and I like to be in touch, keep in touch with people that way. But then I guess there's other things that come along with that that aren't always good. Right. So for example, when doing research for this book, I came across visual artist who, who told me that Instagram has been this huge democratizing boon for their profession because the key to producing original visual art is that you have to constantly feed your creative engine by looking at the creative output of other artists in your genre. So it used to be if you wanted to be a successful creative artist, visual artist, you really had to live in one of the few cities that had a really big gallery scene. Because that was the only way that you could keep exposed to what other people were doing so you could feed your creative engine. Well, it turns out today, lots of visual artists post their work on Instagram. So if you're in that particular field, Instagram now allows you to essentially live anywhere and yet still expose yourself to all of this creative, interesting work as if you were living in Soho in Manhattan. And so it's it's really been a big democratizing uh, effect on visual art. So if you're a visual artist, for example, Instagram has been this huge technological boon to your profession. Now, if you're someone like me, who's a computer scientist, then, you know, I look at Instagram and say, I see nothing there but distraction. You know, there be the dragons on the map <laughs> of the way I could spend the time, which is kind of at the core of this whole minimalist project is that it looks different for different people. Uh, so what tool is a huge benefit for me might be different than what's the, what tool is a huge benefit for artists. But for everyone, there's usually a subset of tools that gives them big wins. There's also a much bigger pool of tools surrounding those that probably cause more harm than good. Well, so if you are a visual artist and you are getting on this inspiration from Instagram and it feels like it's something that's almost necessary for your profession or, or to even get your work seen, how do, how do you then employ digital minimalism if, if it's so key to your success? Well, so this is the other key of minimalism. It's not just about what, it's also about how and when. So if you want to be a digital minimalist, you're not just really intentional about what tech really gives me the big wins is after you've selected that subset of tools, you then say, how and when do I want to use it? And even just to ask these questions, you have to know why you're using it. So, you know, you need this sort of minimalist foundation. So let's take the visual artist example a little bit further. What I learned from the visual artist who went through the minimalist transition process I talk about is that what a lot of them did is once they realized that, oh, this is the value you know, of Instagram, it's seeing other people's art it became much easier for them to figure out the optimal place that Instagram should play in their life. So a lot of these artists, first of all, took it off their phone because there's no reason for it to be on their phone. If it's on their phone, it's a source of distraction. It's maybe keeping them away from things. And they're, they're happy to maybe have to download the app once a week when they want to take a picture of their own art or something like this. They're happy for a little bit of inconvenience there because they don't want it to be a distraction. Most of them curated down who they followed down to a list of artists only that they really respected. And then they had some sort of schedule was common, like Sunday night. You know, Sunday night, I go on, I look at what these 10 artists I really respect, I see what they've been working on this week, I get some inspiration out of it. Now step back and look at the role that Instagram has in their life. It's taking up 15 minutes of their time per week, and yet they're getting 99% of the benefits out of it. So that's pure minimalism. Once you know why you're using a tool it's much easier to find a place for that tool into your daily life in which you're really neutralizing a lot of the unintentional cost. And we've talked a lot on the show about the economics of how technology has gotten to be distracting, how it has managed to seep into our, uh, our attention day-to-day, moment-to-moment. So can you talk a little bit about the economics? Like, What are the economics that are at play that make technology so distracting? This is one of the interesting things about 
this storyline, especially if you if you're observing it as from the perspective of a technologist like me, which is this behavior that we've fallen into in our current moment, where we check our phone all the time. We're just used to this. People check their phones all the time. It feels like it's fundamental, but it really isn't. There's nothing fundamental about, let's say, smartphones or social media that implies that you need to be checking the phone all the time. It turns out that that behavior was largely engineered by a small number of companies. And so the story that I was able to to uncover was that social media in particular took the lead here. And among social media companies, it was Facebook that was out there first because they're one of the earliest. And essentially what happened is about seven or eight years ago, Facebook had to figure out how to shift from user acquisition mode, which is all about just making your service as useful and interesting as possible to users. They had to shift from user acquisition mode to revenue production mode because they wanted to do an IPO. The IPO is what was going to get the return for the original investors. So they had to shift from how do we just make this as useful and interesting as possible to the users to how do we get as much revenue as possible out of our user base. And it was in this period that they re-engineered Facebook so that it was no longer about just posting things and seeing what your friends posted, but instead was about a steady stream of social approval indicators coming at you through the phone. And this is when we saw the rise of things like the like button or favorites or retweets or photo auto tags. These things that were not there in early social media, these things that aren't at all fundamental to Web 2.0, these were introduced primarily because now it gave you a reason to go back to Facebook 20 minutes after you were there before, and then 20 minutes again after that. Because there's something deeply appealing to our brain about seeing evidence that other people are thinking about you and seeing whether or not people approve of you or don't approve of you. It's very tribal. It's very primal. And so the whole social media experience, and then after that, most of the attention economy got re-engineered to be about the phone is a portal to this constant stream of social approval indicators. And sometimes there's a lot. Sometimes there's not that much. Sometimes you'll discover that people are really happy about you. Sometimes you'll discover there's people who are mad at you and it's waiting there. And every time you hit one of those icons, you get to see what's going on. This was massively lucrative for those companies. That's why Facebook's valuation shot up as high as $500 billion, which is astonishing. It was massively, massively lucrative, but it had this huge cost for users because it changed tech from the sort of instrumental thing. You know, oh, I use this to do this. I use Skype to talk to someone. I, I go on the Facebook because I'm trying to find this particular friend. It changed it from this instrumental thing into a sort of compulsive lifestyle. We look at it all the time and begin to eat away time that we used to spend on other things and, and begin to make people feel as if they're almost losing their autonomy. And so it was the economics of these attention conglomerates having to shift from user acquisition to revenue production mode that completely changed our relationship with technology in a way that was not at all with our interest in mind and I think is making a lot of people unhappy. Well, and doesn't it also have a lot to do with the way that we behave as consumers? I mean, if it had been a viable model for Facebook to say, hey, you know what, you are just going to have to pay for this service, uh, and then we would all pay up, and then Facebook would, would be able to thrive as a business. But we, at least in the past, <laughs> were not willing to do that. Do you feel like that? plays a part in this? Well, I mean, it is an interesting, it's an interesting question, right? Because if, let's say Facebook said, we're going to charge, you know, we're going to charge $5 a month or something like this, they would probably see their user counts plummet down to something that is like a fraction of what it is now. But on the other hand, I think that's kind of telling, right? Because that's actually, that's actually saying something like about the, the, the amount of value that the average user is getting out of the service, that if you put even a little bit of a price tag on it, then people's willingness to pay for it would, would probably plummet, which is different than other things. When we think about TV, you know, people happily pay relatively large monthly fees to get various packages of TV channels and shows. I mean, it used to be free, of course, over the air. Um, but as we shifted to a cable and premium model, people were happy to pay for it. So it, it served a value that, that people found hard to replicate. But for a lot of these social media services, it's kind of the only way they could survive because they weren't valuable enough. I mean, this is the Facebook problem is that it's dispensable. Mm -hmm. This is the big problem that they faced, which is it doesn't play a role in most people's lives that's all that crucial. And when people leave Facebook for whatever reason, they typically don't even notice. It's like, yeah, okay, I guess I don't do that anymore. So that's a really big problem for Facebook. So they have to keep it free. They have to try to keep it appealing uh, because it's just not important enough for people that anything else is going to work. And so it is kind of on us in some sense. It's also kind of on them. But I think the fact that they have to stay free to survive 
should be a signal to us that we're probably not getting that much value out of it. I think that's an interesting observation. It's one I hadn't really considered that, hey, that might say something that if Facebook were to start charging that their user base would plummet. But to what extent do you accept the, I guess, tragedy of the commons hypothesis about it or explanation? So in, in, in this case, who are the, uh, who are the farmers using the field? <laughs> this would be the users. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to unpack the analogy here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. So tragedy of the commons would be like that Facebook is, is the, the farmers using the field. And that if maybe I'm thinking of it more as because there's a network effect of Facebook, right? So the farmers using the field are the users. And if they decide, hey, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not going to pay. Well, then I guess they're not they're not using it anymore. Um, maybe I'm thinking more about like this podcast because myself as a creator, this is something I've been looking at uh, really closely is that media, there is this, uh, we, we had this wave of, of people expecting all media to be free. And anybody who's trying to get attention is at the mercy of network effects in a way. And that if something is free, it can spread more easily. I know you have a blog uh, that helps your, your work spread. I know you don't have the social media accounts. But, but then you get into something where you have something like this podcast where there's people enjoying it. It is seen as, oh, this is going to be a marketing thing. And, and if you were to start charging for it, then uh, you just wouldn't, you, it would probably die because people would, would stop listening to it. Whereas there are a few people who support it on Patreon. So I, I guess I'm not able to parse right now in this moment the relationship between that and Facebook. But uh, do you see what I'm getting at at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's this is sort of a discussion of the economics of free in some sense and, and what that what that really means. Like, it sounds like in part what you're saying is there, maybe there's something telling in the fact that if Facebook costs money, people want to use it. But then the counter argument is, well, think about podcasts. Like most people want it, aren't used to paying money for podcasts. And yet sure. it is a real source of value um, for a lot of maybe people. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the, the, the reasonable point in there is there's a, there's a cultural uh, familiarity that plays a role. Like you could, I mean, people probably would be happy to pay money for podcasts if they had been properly sort of uh, acculturated into that idea. Just in a way, I think it took cable TV a while to spread because people were used to antennas. <laughs> like, well, wait a second, I get this for free. Why am I going to pay $40 a month, you know? And, and it took a while, you know, for people to, to change their understanding. Now people think about like TV is something you pay for. So, uh, you know, I do think that's an interesting point. But going back to the original issue of, is it inevitable that, an attention, an attention economy platform like Facebook, a social platform, has to become rapacious in terms of how it tries to harvest attention. It has to make itself purposefully addictive. It might be unavoidable. I mean, I, I think that the thing that makes it necessary is once you make the decision that you are going to take, let's say, venture capital, and then there's going to be an expectation of a potential unicorn scale return. Because if there's an expectation of a unicorn scale return, that means you're going to have to go public. You're going to have to be a really large company. And once you're public, you have a fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible. And if you're offering a free service in the attention space, that means you essentially can't avoid doing what all the social media companies did, which was make their products addictive, right? Just like if you're Exxon and once you've gone public, you can't ignore better oil extraction technology, uh, because it's going to make more money for the shareholders. There is an alternative model, however, where it's still free, but there just wasn't a need to take venture capital or go public, right? Like this was the big take on Twitter. Because I went public a little bit more recently. It was making a lot of money I mean, for, for its employees and, and for the, the, the early sort of non-venture investors. It was like a very profitable service. But once they went public, I mean, everyone was making, it was making millions and millions, like $50 million a month or something. But once it went public, it was like, no, that's no good. You have to be a massive platform, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so those type of pressures are, I, I think, create an interesting dynamic when the thing being extracted is people's attention. Right. And it's like the more layers of management you, you place between people doing the work and the people collecting the money, the more it seems like it's easy to start to go for the short-term gain that might not actually be good in the long run for... Yes society at large. Well, and this brings us back to your tragedy of the commons analogy, I think, which is 
Uh, in the short term, it's okay, we have to have revenue growth. Our, our shareholders expect it. It's a public company. We have a fiduciary responsibility. And you have all these levers you can pull in terms of exploiting people's psychological vulnerabilities to get them to look at their phone more, to look at their account more, to interact with their account more. But the tragedy of the commons is that what eventually happened, which is what's starting to happen right now, is that they become so good at it that the users can't ignore it anymore. And that's why there's that sense of revolt in the air is that there's a lot of people who signed up for these services years and years ago just because they were interesting. And now they're looking up and saying, wait a second, I'm getting this screen time report for my iPhone now. <laughs> it says I'm looking at this for six hours a week or 15 hours a week. They're getting too good at extracting time and attention. And so then maybe that's a good application of the tragedy of the commons analogy mm-hmm. is that all these companies are keep trying to one-up each other and how much they can grab people's time and attention. They're getting really, really good at it. Well, the commons is is societal fabric. Yeah, and also people's heads. <laughs> you know, societal fabric, people's heads, their autonomy, their 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 sense of freedom, like all this. Like, every, yeah, we're in the middle of the field and we're looking up and saying all of our grass is being chewed away by the the proverbial sheep here, right? Uh, you're yeah, it, it you grew last quarter because you made this more addictive, but now I'm using this five hours a day or something. And that societal fabric is made up of our heads. And it's interesting that, yes, so we need to increase profits this quarter. So we've got this algorithm that's going to help us increase the amount of attention that we are able to mine from people. And then the byproduct of that is that it becomes that that algorithm then decides that there's certain emotion or doesn't decide that like the byproduct is that certain emotions are elicited, such as anger or rage or indignation, which then pull in the people to to get the attention like is, is that intentional or is it just a byproduct of the algorithm well there, there's two forces at play that i think are relevant to this analogy so one is the intentional engineering of the product to be more addictive and this is something that's that's actually done intentionally by the attention engineers right this is like let's introduce the like button let's hold back instagram favorites so that they're more intermittent so that you get more of an intermittent reinforcement effect when you click on it. Let's change the palette for the notifications to use an alarm signal. Let's introduce bottomless scrolling because of the way it plays with your your satiety centers, right? So there's features that are baked in purposefully to make the service more addictive. And the, the side effect there is that people use it more than they want to and it makes it unhappy. Then we have the algorithmic consequences, which is let's uh, turn loose statistical machine learning algorithms on figuring out what makes people look at their screen longer in terms of content selection? And that creates these sort of unintentional consequences, which you're talking about just now, which is, well, it turns out the algorithm discovered sorting through the statistics that outrage gets people looking at their screen longer. Uh, People being really upset gets them looking at their screen longer. And now you have this sort of uh, polarization of the world, this uh, outrage fueling at the very edges of extremism and hate. All this is going on is an unintentional consequence of taking a massive platform and turning loose an algorithm that says, see what makes people look at their screen number. Here's a number. The average time to look at their screen, see what makes that number go up. And we look up, you know, 10 years later and and we see uh, a country divided. Right. So we need quarterly profits. So now we need more attention through engineering more attention, we co- it becomes that we incentivize uh, rage or these negative emotions. Then it becomes that if you are a content creator or, say, hypothetically a politician, now your behavior is incentivized to exploit this. And, and then so it just gets into all layers of society. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So so this is what happens. So we have yeah, engineered addiction. So now we're looking at it more and we're doing less of the stuff that we really care about. So we're losing autonomy. Then we have this sort of statistical outrage, which begins to influence not just our emotions and experience of the internet, but our real world behavior. And those two combine to be kind of a one-two punch. Uh, Jaron Lanier in his most recent book about, I guess it's called 10 Reasons Why You Should Quit Social Media Right Now. He actually takes this that, that latter point and pushes it pretty far. And from the perspective of his philosophy, the behavioral modification impacts of these algorithms. So how these algorithms change the way we actually see the world act and live our daily life is really non-trivial to the point where he sort of envisions this sort of algorithmic firmament that is essentially unelected, unobserved, ununderstood, that is completely directing the way that our, our society even operates. This sounds fascinating. I would like to read that book. That will be in the show notes. Ah, well, this has got me all worked up now. I just, uh, anyway, so 
what can you do? I, I know that in the, in the book, you propose this uh, 30-day digital declutter. And I, I got to say, like, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, oh, forget it. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> so why 30 days? Uh, what does that really mean? And, and what do we do after that? Yeah, I mean, a 30-day question is an interesting one, right? Because when you think about decluttering, it's often something you just do in one go. If you're going to declutter your closet, you do it this weekend, right? It, it doesn't take 30 days. So why did the 30 days seep into this process? Well, what it turned out was people actually need that much time away from the noise being delivered through their devices to actually get an answer to the deep questions of what do I actually want to do with my time? Because this is the foundation of minimalism. You got to know what you're all about. You have to know your values. You have to have a foundation of like, this is what I really want to do. Once you know that, then you can put tech to work on behalf of things you care about. It's very sustainable. It makes you much happier, much more uh, satisfied. And it, it, you're much a much healthier relationship with your tech. But you have to have that foundation of this is what I actually want to do. This is what's really important to me. And for a lot of people, that's not an answer that they have at the tip of their tongue. And they actually have to spend some time to reflect and experiment and think and try to figure out, well, what do I want to do? And so that's how the 30 days crept into my process. And so you take this 30-day break from optional technology in your personal life, not just to detox or not just to get away from it, not just to take a break, but so that you actually have some space to figure out what you really want to do. And then when the 30 days are over, you rebuild your digital life from scratch, you know, but this time with intention. Is that 30 days to also... I guess, rewire your brain because these pathways are just so worn to, you know, here's this trigger in my mind and now I, I need to just grab my phone. Yeah, so for most people, that takes about 10 to 14 days. So about halfway through the 30 days, you've, you've achieved the peak detox effect. Um, so yeah, that, that is one of the benefits, but you get there before the 30 days are over. So why do you keep going for a couple more weeks is because it seems like, and I've run over 1,600 people through this at this point, it seems like you need about that much time on average to really figure out what you want to do. And I got to tell you, once you know what you want to do, it's much easier to make changes to, to, your, to your digital life because you're putting things to work for things you really care about. If you skip that step and say, no, no, I'm just, I think I use Instagram too much. And I'm just going to take a break and then just try to use it less in the future. It's really hard for that to be sustainable. The forces are very powerful. If you don't have a foundation of values that you're building all of your actions on, all the old habits have a way of just sneaking back into your life. Well, I know that you've never had a social media account, but I know that a lot of your audience tried this uh, digital declutter. So maybe from there, you might have gotten some uh, some tips for like, if somebody, if you really feel like you, you just, you can't stop, not because you have to for work, even though you might come up with reasons uh, to convince yourself that you can't, that you can't stop. Uh, are, do you have any tips for, for doing that sort of cold turkey 30 day, uh, get off of your social media? Well, so when you go into the 30 days, it's helpful to right away fill your time with a lot of sort of aggressive experimentation reflection, like really uh, uh, proactively and aggressively get out there and start trying to figure out what do I really care about. So go do things, sign up for things, start doing things, have a plan, have a schedule. What you want to avoid is just waking up that first day and staring into the existential void. You know, looking at the blank screen and saying, I don't, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, for some people, especially young people who, who really have no experience with life before constant access to screens, I even recommend before you even get to the 30-day challenge, take a few months and slowly in the background start adding back some analog hobbies, doing some reflection, doing some reading. In other words, get kind of used to the things you care about before you get to to the hard cutoff. That can, that can make the transition easier. Another thing that makes the transition easier is take the things that are particularly attention-catching for you off your phone for, let's say, two or three months ahead of time. You don't have to quit anything yet. You don't have to leave any services yet. Just take it off your phone where it can always grab your attention. Doing that for a couple of months sort of gets you in shape so that when you get to the big three-day declutter, uh, you don't feel the, the compulsion quite as strong. Just a couple things that have helped for me. I, I've had uh, Manish Sethi on a couple times, Pavlock founder. I've used Pavlock before to, to wean me off of, of Facebook for a short time, which is it's, it's a, an electrical shock. Basically, feel the trigger and then, and then, uh, then, then shock yourself. That worked uh, incredibly well. Another thing I did recently was I was going on a weekend trip. And so I told myself, well, I'm just going to delete Twitter and Facebook from my phone for the weekend trip. And then I'll reinstall them. But I never did <laughs> reinstall them, that is. Yeah. Um, so that one worked well. It, 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 I, I took 
this sort of pattern interrupt that was already happening. And I used that to help me get off of uh, a couple of things that were distracting for me. The other one I would say, you're talking about replacing with these analog activities. I find analog activities to be useful for a pattern interrupt as well, is that I'll feel that trigger that, that makes me want to grab my phone and, and look at Twitter, look at Facebook. But maybe if I have a physical book with me all the time and I give myself permission to, to pick up that book and, and start reading anywhere and read as little or as much as I possibly want to, just as I would do with Facebook, then suddenly just the design of the book, once it's in my hand and in front of my face, causes me to uh, go into a more focused state. I don't know if you have any comments about any of those. Well, both those habits I've seen people have success with. So I I think of the first thing is uh, engineered friction, right? So you engineer enough friction that something can't become a knee jerk anymore. So the example I'm more familiar with for my own work is when uh, I have people with Facebook in particular take it off their phone, access it on their computer and not save the password. So they have to type the password in. Right. So uh, they have to log out and then type the password in each time they log on. And this is actually an experiment I did back with my last book. So a while ago, but I had a lot of people who were telling me that Facebook in particular was very important to them. So I said, great. Uh, I want you to take it off your phone, but don't worry. You can use it as much as you want. Just do it on your computer. Don't save the password. And they were convinced. All right. I mean, this is stupid. I'm going to be on my computer a lot. Like Facebook is crucial to me. I couldn't possibly leave it. And most of them never touched it the whole month. And so that does come up a lot. You put a little bit of friction in and it really separates out what's the source mm-hmm. of value uh, and what's knee-jerk. I also really like your idea of replacing. You have a replacement activity, which is something that comes out of the substance abuse community, especially people who are trying to quit cigarette smoking or drinking. They found this to be very successful where you have to replace the triggers that once would drive you towards a cigarette or a drink with something else. And then you get used to whatever that something else is. Some friends of mine have this company that I talk about briefly in the book called Mouse Books, which I really like. They take short stories and books and they compress them down into a format that is roughly the size of a smartphone. And you can put them then in your pocket. You know, it's the size of your smartphone. You put them in their pocket with your phone. And so you can quickly have this, this behavior of, I need to check my phone. You grab the book out of your pocket instead because it fits in your pocket next to the phone. And so I thought that was brilliant because it's a way of, of, taking a very specific behavior, which is reaching into your pocket to grab this thing out to look at when you're bored and you put something in there right next to it that you can grab instead. I've seen mouse books. I didn't, I hadn't thought of it in, in that way before. It does remind me of uh, a new everyday carry item that I recently acquired, which is just Moleskin makes an extremely small notebook. It's about the size of an iPhone SE. And I find it very useful for just an inbox. I jot stuff down on there because if I, if I pick up my phone, and I tried to, you know, get to Evernote to take a note, I, I might likely get off track, whether that's from seeing a text message or, or something like that. So that's another thing that I find very useful for myself. I, I think that our listeners can also learn something from the Amish. Is that right? Yeah, I talk about the Amish in the book, uh, not because I think what the Amish are doing is something we should emulate. <laughs> There's some pretty weird things going on in Amish culture, but they do highlight a particular principle that I think is universal, which is that being intentional can often be a much more powerful source of meaning and satisfaction than convenience. That humans really crave intention and we get a lot of meaning and satisfaction out of being very intentional. Convenience is okay, but it's not nearly as strong. And so the Amish pushed that to an extreme because their whole thing is that they, they're willing to shoulder massive inconveniences in terms of all the different technologies that they decide not to use. Uh, but they do so at the, uh, at the service of this deep intention they have of community and they want their community to be strong. Their cultural fabric. Cultural fabric. So all of their choices about technology come back to, is it going to help or hurt the community? So it's massively inconvenient to be Amish. Uh, and yet the order still survives almost improbably, you know, that, that you can have an old order Amish community on the East Coast of the United States. And it's still here hundreds of years later. It survived almost improbably. But why has it survived? Why has it sort of dissipated as it's surrounded by Walmarts and the Internet and, and all the other trappings and conveniences of the Western world? It's because the intentionality is way more powerful for them than the loss of convenience. And so I point that out because that principle is at play then when we're at the smaller scale of thinking about apps on our phone, right? Mm -hmm. If you're being really intentional about this is what I want to do in my life, 
I know that I'm putting some text selectively to work to help these things and I'm ignoring everything else. That intention is going to make you much happier than what you've lost by the inconveniences of maybe not using this particular social platform that sometimes it's useful. Or maybe you don't always have your phone with you and so that makes this thing harder, right? There's lots of inconveniences in being a digital minimalist. But the lesson from the Amish is that that's going to be far outweighed by the positives of being in control and intentional about how you live. Right. So it seems like if you can be clear about your purpose, your values, if, that, if maybe that's some sort of a ritual that you exercise once a week to revisit those things and then look at your digital tools in the context of your life and are they helping you or, or harming you in the pursuit of those things, that might be a good way to sustain digital minimalism after you have done this 30-day declutter and and reintroduce the things that are working for you? I mean, that's basically what makes it sustainable. The reason why this philosophy works, like people have lasting positive changes in terms of their relationship with technology is exactly because of that. Because when we build lifestyles off of things we really care about, those lifestyles are uh, sustainable. If we instead try to build our lifestyle by just abstinence, like, oh, I don't like this thing anymore. I'm going to try to do it less. That's really hard because that thing is always there. It's always pulling at you. If you just say, I don't like the way Twitter makes me feel, I'm going to try to use Twitter less. That might work in much in the same way that you say, I don't know. I don't like the way junk food makes me, me feel. So I'm going to try to eat less junk food. It might work. But if you instead are, are going from a foundation of values, like this is what I really care about. And so the only tech I want to use is to help this thing I care about. You have such a commitment in those things you care about, then when you when you realize that Twitter is unrelated to that, those values, it's much easier to avoid it. Just like if in food, you decide you become very hardcore about paleo. This is the way we're meant to eat. This is the way we're meant to li- live. It makes my life better. It's, it's playing with my sort of my, my ancestral genes or whatever it is. It's much easier to avoid junk food because it's not just about junk food is bad. It's about this way of living is good. And so that's the core of what makes minimalism sustainable is that you're focusing on what's good and trying to amplify it as opposed to trying to focus on what's bad and try to reduce it. I think that we've presented a lot of different things that can help our audience understand what digital minimalism is, how we've arrived where we are, what sort of steps they can take uh, to integrate it into their lives and to, to sustain in their lives. They should definitely check out the book. It's a fantastic book. I'm curious, just you as a technologist and as a philosopher of the relationship between technology and humanity, I'm I kind of wonder what your thoughts are about technological innovation at large. Like, we have wonderful innovations. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm in South America. I moved down here uh, in part because I wanted to live in a place that was less tech-obsessed. And sometimes I feel like I see humanity at large obsessing over technological innovation or technological, what they might see as progress, and at the same time, it's like, well, wait, you didn't, you haven't yet explored all the things you can do to live a richer life with the things that we already have. So I, I was tweeting the, I was tweeting Elon Musk the other day. I don't think he, he noticed, but I was like, we should stop going, we should stop the whole Mars thing and we should make it so that we can like have eye contact over, uh, over video chat. Do you have any thoughts about humanity at large and how we decide, you know, what technological innovation is and and what we should be doing with technology? Well, one thing I agree with is this notion that there needs to be a much richer debate going on that guides what we're working on, right? This is one of the weird things about technology in the U.S. context is that we uh, essentially just delegate everything to the people that have the technical engineering skills to actually produce technological innovation. We delegate any serious thinking about what innovation we need or what's useful. We delegate any serious thinking just to these same engineers, which are not in any way a sort of uh, representative cross-section of the country. And they're not in any way like particularly well-equipped to understand issues of... um, philosophy or human satisfaction or, or flourishing. And I think that disconnect can cause issues. We, we saw a lot of that occur in this in the sort of mobile internet revolution of the last decade or so, where we had all this money and attention and bright minds go into trying to build the most sticky possible attention platforms. And where do we end up? You know, it's like, did, was it was that all worth it? I mean, it generated a lot of money, but it's we, we already had the social internet. 
Um, we already had the ability for people to find each other, express themselves, connect and, uh, and, and connect and find interesting ideas. Like that was all out there. We have these universal internet protocols. So like, was all this worth it to have Twitter? I mean, that, so I think that's an issue. And the other issue, which is really where I sort of specialize in my thinking on philosophy and technology, is that I think we underestimate the degree to which technologies can have these unintentional consequences or nonlinear responses. Uh, we're too much in this, what's called the, the technological instrumentalist frame of mind, which sees technology as completely neutral. Mm-hmm. And all that matters is how people use it. You know, what technology do I use? Why did I use it? Why did I develop it? You know, technological instrumentalism just cares about the people itself. And sort of sees technology it's as these sort of neutral tools that people put to use for various reasons. And engineers like to think this way. They're very precise. They're very optimal. They think, well, if this technology is giving you trouble, it's because you're using it wrong. Like, you know, if it's not good, just stop using it. But there's this other school of thought, which I subscribe to a little bit older, called technological determinism, that says, no, the tech itself can have huge impacts on culture that are not decided on by anyone. They're completely unplanned. They're completely unintentional. And we have to be really careful about that. And I see that all the time now in the modern techno world, especially in the space of digital networks where uh, my, my home specialty lies. And so this is the other thing I don't think we think enough about, which is you can invent something and throw it into a human cultural ecosystem. And it can have radical consequences that no one chose, that no one wants, that weren't intentional, that's not making anything better, that, you know, that it's just technology can do this. It's, it's as if it has a mind of its own. It doesn't really. I mean, what's really going on here is these systems are dynamical and unpredictable. So you change the forces and you have unpredictable outcomes. But it seems like, in a lot of cases, it's like the technology has a will of its own. It's not always with our best interest in mind. And so I think both of those things are really relevant to, to our, our current moment, which is we need more people involved in thinking about what technology we need and why. And we have to be much more wary about the sort of determinist forces of technology. You invent something, you step back, and you realize it made a massive change without our permission. When that happens, we should be willing to, to, to say, okay, we need to push back or change something seriously. Well, to think about this deterministic idea on like the most basic level, I'm imagining a chimp fishing ants out of an anthill, but she's holding a stick. And so the moment that she begins holding this stick, she can't use her hand for something else in that, in that moment. Is that kind of what you're driving at? Is that when we decide to use a technology, it's at the expense of something else. It's almost impossible to interface, or maybe it is impossible to interface with a piece of technology without losing some other inherent ability. Well, I, I agree with that. That is true, which is why we have to be more wary about what tech we're developing and for why, but determinism can actually be even more dynamic than that. And so the classic example of technological determinism was a a book that a historian named Lynn White Jr. wrote called, I think it was called Social Structure and Medieval Technology and Social Change. Mm -hmm. And basically what he tracked back in this book is he says, okay, here's what happened in Europe in the medieval period. The stirrup, you know, for a horse, the horse stirrup made its way to Western Europe. And as a consequence of this, we got feudalism. <laughs> like no one, no one ever said. Can you down. unpack that for right. us? Right. And so he unpacks the whole book. Unpacks it, but basically he he unpacks how okay you have the horse stirrup. What's the horse stirrup in, uh, allow? What well, allows for you actually to have knights? Right. You can have people in armor on horses uh, in battle because the stirrup keeps them on the horse when they strike someone with a lance, right? Before there are stirrups, if you tried to fight from on top of a horse, especially if you're in heavy armor, you know, you hit someone and you're falling off the horse. Well, putting armored people on a horse where they can strike and stay on the horse, these are like shock troops. It was like the panzer units of the of the medieval, the medieval times. They're incredibly effective. It would allow you to decimate the other army. So everyone had to have these sort of mounted armored shock troops. Well, it's expensive to actually support armored, these sort of mounted armored shock troops. Feudalism turned out to be an economic configuration where you kind of, you break up your land and here's the barony. And in the barony, you have these sort of lesser gentry uh, and the peasants serve them. And this worked out to be a good way to actually spread out and support uh, knights, Hmm. armored shock troops. And so it became an almost necessity that they had to shift to that economic system because it was the only way to actually have that war technology. And if you didn't have that war technology, the next guy who did was going to take over your whole kingdom. And so no one sat back and planned it. So what's like the modern equivalent? Well, I'm working on a book right now about email. And something similar, I'm convinced something similar happened in the modern knowledge workplace when email came along. You introduced the ability to do 
low friction digital communication. And it ended up completely changing the way people work to this, this current mode we have today where all you do all day is communicate. Just messages back and forth, talking all day to 100 different people, inboxes with thousands of messages. And we all convince ourselves, well, there must be, this must be more productive. Someone must have figured out this is a better way of working. Uh, of course, this is what you would do if you have email. But if you really work uh, dig deeper, it's, it's been disastrous for productivity in an economic sense. It's not making us better at working. No one likes it. You can, you can find these case studies of particular companies where they trace particular email habits and find the entire thing is emergent. It's just sort of a, a dynamical response to small decisions being made in the moment. So in other words, this technology came along and completely changed the way that hundreds of millions of people work in a way that made them less effective, burnt out, and miserable. No one ever sat down and decided it. No one ever thought it was a good idea. It's not serving the interest of one group or another. It's essentially the technology itself said, okay, I'm going to change the way we all work. Well, not to be alarmist, but it sounds like a, like a cancer. Yeah, in the, in the sense that, that it could have these sort of huge impacts. Now, if you unpack things, okay, it's not that the technology itself is autonomous. Uh, that's sort of like a heuristic or like a metaphor. I mean, what's really happening is just that these, these social systems and cultural systems we use to interact with each other, like at a workplace, are what engineers would call dynamical, which means the forces connect in ways that are uh, unpredictable. It's very difficult to predict how the system's going to unfold, and small changes can create large, unpredictable changes, right? Just like weather is a dynamical system. So we have the proverbial butterfly flapping its wings, creates a hurricane halfway around the world. And so like when you put email into the knowledge workplace, just like when you bring the horse stirrup into medieval Europe, it messes around with these forces and it creates nonlinear, unpredictable outcomes, which maybe could be really good or maybe could be really horrible or mm. maybe could be somewhere neutral, but it's not being planned by people. And I think that happens a lot more than we realize, which is why we have to do the type of thing I do, which is, okay, we introduce something, let's critically analyze what the result was. Because there might be a lot of impacts of this thing that actually are really not in our best interest and no one really wants that to be the case. Mm -hmm. When we find those things, we have to be willing to be pretty aggressive about pushing back or putting up barriers or changing our behavior to try to, to neutralize them. I'm thinking about a technology with slightly fewer levels of abstraction in its impact, polio. Polio is a disease that resulted from good sanitation. <laughs> If you're, if you're exposed to the polio virus before a certain age, uh, then you become immune to it. And that used to always be the case before we had really good sanitation. But then once we started have good, having good sanitation, then people were not gaining immunity. And then we started having polio outbreaks. Uh, fortunately, we were, we were able to come up with a vaccine to prevent polio. But there's just one more example of how certain technologies can have secondary effects that we don't foresee. Yeah, which is why I think it's so dangerous if we adopt an attitude, which we saw a lot recently in the last 10 or 15 years, especially from technologists, of this sort of unchecked exuberance, where you say, wait a second, if you're starting to talk critical about a particular technology, then we're going to assume that you are against the program of technology in general. <laughs> right, right. Or that you're, that you're Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> we, we would be pretty hypocritical to be completely against technology, given that we're talking on Skype right now, right? Yeah, that a computer scientist talking with you on, on Skype. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course. Um, but that type of attitude until recently was actually quite common when it came to especially the innovations of the Internet age. And it was quite enraging to people like myself who had been around in the earlier days of the Internet and saw all of its innovative potential and watched with a lot of trepidation when a small number of companies came along and said, we're going to create our own private versions of the internet. And it's going to be inside our walled garden. And you can come into our walled garden for free. But while you're in here, we're going to observe every last thing you do. And we're also going to try to feed you addictive drugs. You know, And, and those of us mm -hmm. who were hand coding HTML pages and using the gopher protocol in the early 90s are saying, well, wait a second. Um, that doesn't seem like a positive evolution, you know, for this particular technology, that's probably going to have some negative consequences. And they hear someone say, oh, wow, look, like you must be anti-internet <laughs> yeah, right. or you must be anti-technology, right? I mean, it can be, uh, that can be a real, a real block to the type of engagement we need, which is, okay, this tech is really powerful. That's why we have to keep looking at it. That's why we want to keep embracing it. But man, we got to be careful. Mm -hmm. And while I'm speaking to you, just as an author, I'm very curious to understand a little bit better your incredible talent for finding these ideas that are perfectly timed. For example, deep work. It's, it's this thing. It's become this, this cultural meme or concept that people just latch onto. And I don't know what insight you can provide <laughs> into how 
you're able to do that? Is it just because you're not spending your time scrolling through Facebook? Uh, in part, <laughs> uh, probably more in part is I, I think and I write and I publish all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, there's sort of a work ethic to it. So, so especially on my blog and in articles, um, I'm constantly reading things. I'm constantly thinking. I'm constantly writing. I'm constantly trying out ideas. I try out ideas. And I mean, think about this conversation we're having now. We're discussing, you know, technological instrumentalism versus technological determinism. I'm out here testing this out. It's something I'm interested in, but I want to see if other people are interested in. How does it go? Is it interesting? You know, a year from now, that might be foundational to something I'm doing, or a year from now, it might have withered because, you know, hey, you know what? It's not quite right, or it's not quite getting at what I think is important. So I'm constantly thinking and writing and putting ideas out there all the time. Wait, and, and hold on. So now how are you validating that test? Is it if somebody emails you and says, hey, I heard you talking about uh, this on the Love Your Work podcast that really resonated with me, or is, or, or is it some other method? Well, a lot of different things. So yeah, some of that, right? Are, are, are people talking about it? Am I getting interesting comments from my readers on my blog? Is it getting picked up? That's part of it. But also just you get a, a mental consonance, right? Is this working for me, right? When you're a professional thinker, there's a, there's a clicking in the place that happens when a structure seems to be a, a, a workable framework for understanding the world where thing, it just works well. Things fit into it. There's no rough edges. You know, you, you don't hear any friction. And the only way to figure that out is just to keep trying it out. Mm-hmm. And so even just my own internal reaction to an idea can be really instructive. And so I'm constantly generating ideas, bringing in input, generating ideas, putting them out into the world, seeing how I feel about them, walking, thinking, talking to people in, in person, talking to people in interviews, writing articles. And over time, something will emerge and it will persist and it will feel right and it'll be expository. I, it, it helps me understand what's happening in the world. It seems to fit different cases. It's generative. It seems to generate advice that's useful. Uh, more evidence is gathered. It really seems to support it. And when I get one of those, then I write a book about it. Mm-hmm. So are you familiar with Isaiah Berlin's uh, idea of foxes versus hedgehogs? Yeah. And so do you consider yourself more fox-like or more hedgehog-like? I don't know. It's 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 hard to tell because, you know, within the particular sandboxes where I play, so like within tech and culture, tech and society, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of what I'm consuming and what I'm trying out. Um, but I don't play outside that sandbox, you know. So I, I'm not also trying to say, why don't I do, why don't I look into diets or why don't I try to look into politics or something like that. And so it's like in the broader scheme, you can be one, but within the narrow confines, you can be the other. Right. Oh, I guess I haven't, I haven't explained to the listeners to I guess the, the, the fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one thing and, and goes aggressively towards that thing. And, and but you, what you just described was, was sort of an exploratory process where you are, it's tentacular. You're putting out feelers all over the place, but then later on, you're refining that. Yeah, like I read everything. I, I talk to lots of interesting people. There's lots of interesting people in my life that I sort of have long distance relationships through like email and phone calls and all sorts of experts and people who in, in all sorts of different fields. So I'm constantly kind of bringing in information. And then when something clicks, I sort of hedgehog on it. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. now I'm going to I'm going to pull this out here. But even that fox-like behavior is still within some confines, right? So I'm within this general area of, of, of tech and culture and society and human meaning, the sort of technological world, I'm, I'm sort of still within that world. Mm-hmm. And I explore very broadly um, until I find something that clicks. And then I really, I really spend some time with it. And I think many of our listeners are familiar with the concept of deep work or of setting aside time to do work that is extremely deep and focused. I've talked about similar ideas of categorizing a person's thought and prioritizing according to that. Is it as simple as that for you? Is it deep and shallow? Are there other ways that you categorize your ways of thinking and silo them? Well, the thing I learned after deep work came out, which is not really in the book, but I think is important, is understanding that there's different flavors of deep work. And not just between different professions, but within your particular profession, there could be different types of things you do that are deep, that that they feel different, and they, there's different things to support them. And so this was an issue I, I had at some point where I allowed, you know, one type of deep work I do in my life. So as a theoretical computer scientist, for example, I really had this canonical understanding of deep work for me as I'm solving a theorem. But it became clear there's other things I do that are just as deep and require just as much concentration, but but are supported by completely different behaviors. So like when I'm writing is very different or when I'm reading or taking in ideas or having a conversation with someone who's a subject matter expert and I'm trying to 
build up my understanding and then I can use that to develop new ideas. This is all deep work too, but it feels very different. And so uh, understanding there's different flavors of deep work was really important for me because otherwise what was happening is maybe I'd have a week where I was really talking to a lot of people and reading a lot in preparation to write a book chapter. And because I wasn't solving math proofs in the woods of my notebook, I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> I'm not getting any deep work done. And so having that, that understanding that depth comes in many different flavors and they each might have different things that help support them, uh, I think really helped me broaden. Are there any ways that you formalize that in the way you work? Well, the way I try to think about it is for each of the type of deep works I do, what are the strategies and ritual that's going to help me be as effective as possible? And because what I want is when I'm doing any type of deep work, I want to make sure that I'm giving myself every chance for maximizing the intensity. And so the way I formalize is just in general, I try to keep at least for, you know, the current season, the current types of things I'm working on, what are my rituals and strategies that are going to support it? So there's different things I do for like for proof solving for me, for example, is uh, very ambulatory. Walking plays a huge role in me trying to uh, solve proofs. Reading, on the other hand, let's say trying to consume complex ideas for potential use in my writing. Has completely different rituals are useful for that. Like there's completely different times of day. There's different places I go, what I, what I sit, what I drink, what I listen to are completely, you know, it has to have its own set of rituals. Writing is this whole different thing. You know, what are, what are the right times to write? Like that's completely different than what I need for solving proofs, which is completely different than what I need for writing, um, or for reading. And so for me, it's making sure that I have a pretty clear understanding of what's working for each of those things and recognizing that they could be different. In terms of reading things to integrate into your writing, you mentioned places you go, or, or maybe even you might mention the beverage that you have, et cetera. Uh, can you drill deeper on that? Is, is there, are, are there various types of reading or exploration that you do that uh, call for different settings? For sure. I, I have a whole sort of arsenal of, uh, I have a whole arsenal of reading habits. So there's, there's like the reading I do at night, which I have this big leather armchair that's famous to my readers <laughs> that I use for my, my nighttime my nighttime reading that I have in my study. Uh, I have this habit of certain times of year, especially during semesters of periods where I'm not teaching, where there's a diner in town where I go to get uh, an early lunch. And I just have this habit of, especially when I'm doing reading about techno-philosophy, something like this, like kind of academic, philosophical, I bring it there and read during the lunch. It's just an, a, an association I have with, with doing that. There's a particular coffee shop in town I use for other types of reading, which sometimes in the afternoon when my energy might otherwise be low, if I can go there, maybe get a beer or something like that, and I can sit down and, and sort of tackle something that's kind of interesting. And so I have this whole arsenal of different places and times I go for reading uh, that helps me, you know, do it and get more concentration out of it. And you, you have sort of gained a sense of maybe the right mental state for different environments and the different types of content that you're taking in? Yeah, and this is this is the big recommendation to the the aspiring deep worker is that this is what you should always be talking thinking about. What type of deep work do I do and what's working for those types? And you're always thinking about it, you're always experimenting, you're tweaking your rituals, you're tweaking your strategies. It's, you know, you have to think a lot about thinking if you want to do it for a living. Mhm. Mm Cal Newport, it has been such an honor to speak to you. I think that uh, all of our listeners should go out and get Digital Minimalism as well as many of, many of your other books, Deep Work, So Good They Can't Ignore You, lots of other books. I think that we have a lot of stuff for our listeners to chew on. Is there any place where you would like them to get more of you? So I'm a big blogging nerd. I'm a big fan of that as an internet technology. So if you go to calnewport.com, you can see over a decade's worth of blog posts. And so if you want to see that ideation and experimentation in progress, uh, that's where you can go to see it happening. Wonderful. Cal, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars. Put your money where your mind is. 
and keep Love Your Work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Cadavy. As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash Cadavy. That's patreon.com slash K-A, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially, and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsors Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com and Paula Spriggs, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pinkovichis. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.